This is a quick content note sent from the future just to flag up the fact that in this episode I use words to describe people that I would choose different words for if I made this episode again today. Now I would use the phrase sex worker but in this episode I use the word prostitute. I hope and still think that this story itself sees and shows sex workers as people and from a non-judgmental and non-stigmatizing position. However, the language choice was poor and ignorant and came from a, a place of not listening to sex workers enough yet and not having heard their voices and what they would prefer to be called enough. So if you are a sex worker and you are listening to this episode, you may not want to because I used poor language choice. And if you do listen to it, you'll at least know that it's coming up. And for people like my past self who use this word without knowing that it causes many people offence, I hope that this content note will flag that up to you as well. Hello and welcome to the Getting Better Acquainted Christmas Special. I'm Dave and I'm the guy that puts all this stuff together. Today we're going to get better acquainted with... Me, Dave. I'm going to tell you a story about a Christmas that I had. So I guess partly we're getting better acquainted with Christmas too. Although I think you'll find it's a rather untypical kind of Christmas. Although maybe in some ways it's very Christmassy indeed. In some ways this story ties up a few strands from the series that have come before. I hope you like it. Have a happy Christmas. Something happened somewhere in the middle of my childhood where Christmas stopped being nice. When I was nine, mistaking a present under the Christmas tree, I thought it was for me, but it was actually for my stepdad. My mum went crazy, she yelled at me, she said I'd ruined Christmas and stormed out of the room and stormed upstairs. My stepdad pushed me back into the Christmas tree and I can feel the spine still when I think about it in my back and hit me and told me I'd upset my mother and I was a bad person basically. And I think that it may have been a little bit before that that Christmases started to be bad but that's kind of the symbol in my head of bad Christmases. They were having a really tense time in their own relationship. And my mum had got this present. It was from my sister, but she was a youngster. So it was from my mum to my stepdad. And it was kind of a symbol of trying to make the marriage work. So when I fucked it up for her, 
she took that out on me and I was never given the opportunity to say, well, Dave and dad look very similar. And I was given the job of passing the presents out from underneath the tree. So I was kind of doing my duty and trying to make everybody happy. I was really remember trying to be the person smoothing over things. I was a middle child and that's what I tended to do anyway. Christmas after that felt less and less special, less and less magic. For me, Christmas was spoiled, right? So when I met my girlfriend at university, she loved Christmas and, and, and I kind of hated Christmas. And I was like an alien to her in that respect. She was like, well, you know, Christmas is so, so amazing. How can you hate it? And I kind of explained to her why. And she explained to me her side of things, how it could be special. And I kind of knew it could be special. I, I do cry in Christmas movies because they're, you know, because because of the wonder of Christmas. I do cry at that, but I'd never felt the wonder of Christmas myself. So because I'd left home and I hated Christmas, I said I'm not going back for Christmas anymore. And I didn't go back for Christmas. And I spent a Christmas with some family and I loved that. And that was the first Christmas where I actually enjoyed Christmas. And then I, I spent various different Christmases. One I spent even on my own and I still had a really good time. But time was going on and it was clear to me that I hadn't spent a Christmas with my mum. I had a rule as well that I couldn't, you know, couldn't, wouldn't spend Christmas with my mum and my sister together. That was the rule. Like I could see one of them or the other of them. And that is still the rule. I'm going away with my mum again for Christmas very soon. And uh, yeah, that is the rule. My mum said to me, do you want to go away together for Christmas? And I was, so I was 24. I'd moved to London. I didn't have a... I, at the time, I didn't have a, I, I had a job, but I didn't have. I had a start date, but I so I didn't have to look for jobs. But I was kind of living in my sister's house as a lodger and having to do. I had to do chores around the house to pay my rent. And me and my girlfriend were kind of. I'd moved to this new place, and she didn't. She hadn't wanted to move to London, and I had pushed her to do it because I was like, I want to go to London because that's where creative stuff happens, and I want to be a part of that. And. I was kind of in a weird kind of place where I thought that, that my life was going to maybe change or maybe 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 go in a different direction. And that's probably true, actually. So I said, yes, let's go away together. And I thought, what have I done? Is this a good idea? Because my mum and me, even though I've tried to get on with my mum, and I really tried to see her as a person and acknowledge her and engage with her, it doesn't always work and so I kind of knew that and I was quite scared of this my mum has a very volatile temper and she can get very angry and she can shout at people and she can do so unfairly and I think she would admit that about herself and it has meant that we've always had to deal with a kind of cycle of anger and depression that she has inside her but like all cycles you can also get this really happy childlike high you know she may have well I mean I don't want to diagnose her but she may require a diagnosis my mum really likes art and I thought that not being sober would be a good thing to be when I'm around my mother during this time and so Amsterdam was the idea that was suggested and I jumped on it quick as a flash Obviously, I would not normally do weed, but it seemed to me a great opportunity to avoid engaging with my mother if I was to spend Christmas with her stoned. I haven't really been away from the UK very much in my life. 
And so I hadn't been on very many aeroplanes. I'd been on two school exchange trips when I was a kid, and one of them was on an aeroplane. was to Japan, so I'd had a long flight aeroplane. But I, I didn't know what aeroplanes were really like that much. And my mum is really scared of flying. So my mum and me kind of met up to get this bus to the, to the airport. And she was really scared, and she was taking kind of calms, these kind of calming pills that are supposed to work. And I was really, really, really excited because I was going on an aeroplane and I was really excited to be going on an aeroplane and I was really excited to be going to Amsterdam. I heard so many things about it. So she had this kind of kind of anxiety thing going on and I had this really high, happy thing going on. So I don't know, I was just kind of taking the piss out of her all the way over. But it was kind of this weird, already we were sort of bonding, even though I was taking the piss out of her and even though she was anxious, we were kind of getting on. I hadn't really experienced that with her, I don't think, ever before, because I was an adult at that time and before I'd been a child. So, you know, you suddenly reconnect with someone as an adult in a way that you never normally would as a child. And so that was really exciting. And I remember looking out of the looking out of the plane like I had when I went to Japan and looking at the, the land in the sky, as I thought of it when I was 15, of all these clouds from above and just being co- totally knocked out by that experience. I mean, I really love flying. I know so many people are scared of it, but I, I just find it so magical. And that kind of magic, I don't know, that kind of magic got into me somehow on that plane. And, and the rest of this whole, the whole of this Christmas was magical in, in lots of different ways. My mum was a nurse and then she became a social worker and then she got into social work management and then she retired. So I think at this time she was in management. I think she was actually having quite a hard time with the rest of her team. I think she was experiencing quite a lot of stress in her everyday life actually. And so this for her was a release. And it was for me, it was a release as well because I was getting away from this kind of weird lodging experience with my sister and I, we were both getting to go away and, and kind of not check in with reality for 10 days and so I guess we were already sharing that as well. We got there really early to the airport and we went to the bar and we both had a whiskey. Again this is a moment where I kind of I'm feeling deliciously adult. When we got to Amsterdam, it was really everything was really exciting to me because I'd never been in a different country as an adult, and people spoke this different language, and everyone refused to let me even try and speak Dutch, as they do when you're when you are English speaking. Double-decker trains, which seemed really exciting, and and, and all of that stuff, and we get to the we, we find the hotel and we sort of check in and all of that stuff, and then my mum wants to go to bed and it's nine o'clock. And I suddenly realise that this entire holiday is going to be spent with my mum going to bed at a reasonable time because she's in her late 50s, I think, at this time. And I'm going to not be going to bed at nine o'clock. So suddenly I'm realising that I'm going to be on my own in a different city in the evenings. And what city is that? That's Amsterdam. And, and Amsterdam, like I'd already checked where the where the places to get weed are because obviously I wanted to experience this as it was legal in that country and 
those are the same places where the red light district are, the places to get weed as well. So I was suddenly realizing I was going to be spending my time in this, in this basically walking around red light districts looking for weed. And I mean, I had been to Amsterdam once before. I'd been there for 12 hours as a younger man, 18 years old. And when I went there, I, I already had this kind of attitude of method writing, of trying to have experiences to write about. And I was a little bit naive. So when I was 18, I slept with a prostitute in Amsterdam to write about it. And I found it a very bleak experience, really. And it did. I mean, I wrote a very bleak and quite a good for my age poem about it. Uh, so I guess it was worthwhile in that respect. But I, I hadn't anticipated the, the bleakness that I was going to be putting into my actual self. You know, I hadn't seen that there would be a difference between writing about something and experiencing something. Luckily, by this time, I think I got a little bit more about that, although I guess people are judged by what they, they hear about in this story. I, I realised that there was going to be a very different holiday than I thought. I, I thought it was going to be a holiday about coping with my mum and going to art galleries, but it was going to have that element. But it was also going to be about a completely different life in a different place. And it was uh, amazing realization and then I took out my guidebook and I, I followed this map through the streets of Amsterdam and, and Amsterdam's so beautiful and it was it was the evening and I had this had this really long winter coat that my sister had confiscated or or stolen from the drama department at her school and uh, it was an ex um world war I think it's an ex world war 2 coat so it's really long and designed for like winter and snow I have this CD on and these headphones playing Anthony and the Johnsons into my ears, which is really beautiful music. And I mean, that's, that was on repeat in the rest of the story when I'm talking about walking through the red light district. I'm listening to Anthony and the Johnsons and I'm wearing this long coat and I've got this big scarf and I feel like I'm some kind of literary character. Like I, I don't feel like I'm living my life. I feel like I'm living some kind of literary character's life. And I'm walking through the streets following this guidebook and I find the, the first weed cafe that, that I was going for and I, I, I get some weed and I, I start smoking it and I realise that I've just found my way around a foreign city by myself using a guidebook and that that is a level of responsibility in adulthood that I never would have expected to experience. And I, and I was sort of like... This is this is what this I am capable. If you put me into a foreign city and you say sort yourself out, I can do that. I'm not a child anymore that can't do that. And after that first toke on that joint that I had rolled in that cafe, all of the rest of this story I'm stoned. Because it was legal, I really went to town with it. I bought lots of edibles and I got lots of weed and I was just stoned from pretty much when I woke up in the morning I would get high and when I was walking around art galleries and uh, in churches listening to choral music with my mum I would have a little nibble from a bonbon chocolate bonbon every so often and I was just experiencing you know, the, the churches and the art in such an intense and beautiful way. And then I was having this kind of nine o'clock, mum goes to bed, I go off into the red light district and experience a very different kind of human existence. You know, the, the kind of oppressive capitalism of the red light district where, where sex is a commodity and everybody's trying to sell something, but also 
mixed with that is the fact that these are bodies which are beautiful and so you can't help but respond to beautiful bodies and you can't help but respond to people their eyes their eye contact their their personas and so i'm i'm kind of living this kind of weird mash of all of these different experiences i go right i'm in the red light district what can i do I go to a sex show, a live sex show, and watch that. I kind of get really interested in the theatre of it because I make theatre sometimes, and and I'm watching the like I watch the rotation. So I see the black couple, slightly S and M couple, loving kind of girl porn couple with a kind of act in between each burlesque act or a comedy act in between each. But I, I stay there for long enough that I see the cycle play out a number of times, and I'm sitting in the front row because I'm an idiot and I'm writing about it furiously in my notebook I don't even think that people can see me you know I'm, I'm just writing down everything that's happening and trying to commit as much of it to text as possible as fast as possible so I could capture it one of the performers sort of sees me writing at the front and she grabs my notebook off me and she's like looks at it and she's like what are you up to why are you writing this down and it's kind of a slightly tense moment and then she says, get up here on stage. And the next thing I know, I'm up on stage and uh, she's got a banana. And there's a, there's a fi- five of us, I think, five men who've been picked to go up on stage. And she's got a banana that she's peeled and she's holding in front of her crutch. And we have to bite off the banana closer and closer to her crutch. And she chooses me to be the last person getting close to her crutch. And as I go close to her crotch, a man, I guess it was a man, I couldn't really tell, dressed in a gorilla suit with a massive uh, strap-on dildo runs out from the side and chases me around the stage with this big dildo while all of the audience are laughing at me. And I'm seeing this happen from outside my body, you know? I'm just amused by what's happening. I mean, I never thought that I would be standing on a stage being chased by a gorilla with a big hard-on in my life. And then I sit back down in the audience and I carry on writing and I'm kind of amazed at my ability to not be embarrassed and run out of there that I'm still writing this down and I'm like feverishly writing about this gorilla and his big hard on and stuff as the next act starts up. But that's one of the things that I did in the red light district but a lot of the time I just walked around the red light district because it's a fascinating place to walk around. The women will try and beckon you in and there is a kind of element of flirtation which maybe is exploitative people can judge me how they like but it it certainly is interesting and so i'm kind of walking around the red light district learning the there's a couple of different red light districts learning how they operate talking to a lot of the women actually because they open the door and they try to get you to go in they tell me the prices that they are and i sort of start to realize that i can do a kind of price test and find out where the cheaper prostitutes are and who the cheaper prostitutes are and kind of get an idea of what this says about culture. And I realised that the, this experience of sort of walking around had all of these kind of very strange moments. Like there was a moment when I went into this indoor part of the red light district and I took my Anthony and the Johnson's headphones off and there was a girl looking into a mirror in a window and she knew that I was watching her but she pretended that I wasn't watching her and she was doing her hair really really seductively but pretending like she's making up without anybody watching her and she's playing this song beautiful by James Blunt which I hate I hate this song but at this moment in time the song the woman the moment of eye contact that we have through this mirror this kind of shared moment 
it's it's deeply beautiful and it's really just about I don't know if it's about chemistry between us but it was certainly about chemistry on my side towards her I didn't do anything with any of these prostitutes but I I did walk around the red light district for a long time try to understand how people were there how it operated because the men are very interesting to watch the men walking around beside the windows and and, and and the way they walk the kind of looks on their faces as they come out or they go into these windows that are all around you and I became really interested in hearing what the prostitutes had to say about their own experience and so I decided to interview a prostitute I didn't have very much money and I realized that the amount of money you'd have to pay a prostitute for their time would be the same amount of money that you'd have to pay them for their time. So I went up to a um, prostitute that I had made eye contact with a few times and I asked her if she wanted to, if, if she, how much it would be to have an interview with her. And she said to me, what, what do you mean, baby? And I said, like, we talk, I ask you about your life and I write it down. She finds it hilarious that I want to talk to her. She tells me it's going to be £50, the same as, a, as for a suck and fuck. And then I have to have this really awkward conversation where I say, OK, brilliant. Um, where's the nearest cash machine? Uh, could you tell me where the next nearest cash machine? Of course, she knew where the nearest cash machine was. I, I guess she gets asked that question a lot. I went to the cash machine, I came back and I paid her to talk to her. But she'd been working there for seven months and costing the window cost her a hundred euros and she was from Torino in Italy or she'd ended up in Amsterdam working there she'd worked in a supermarket back in Italy I said why did you come here she said well I want to make money and I said well why, why do you want money and she said to get a Ferrari I mean, I thought that was going to be my only prostitute interview. I didn't have enough money to interview any more prostitutes. But I walked around the red light district for the rest of the time there. As I walked past a black woman, she opened the door and she said, you come back here two times now, you want something. And I, I said, I'm a writer and I haven't got any money left, but I just really want to, to know the experience of people. And she said, you want to write? You want to know what it's like here selling a body in this city? How much will you pay? And I... I say, well, I haven't got any money. I told you I haven't got any money. And she grabs, I'm wearing a hat. She grabs this hat off my head. She runs into the window and into her room. And I'm, I'm outside the window. And I know if I step through, I'm, uh, I'm going to be putting myself in an awkward situation. But this was a Christmas present from my girlfriend, this hat. And I didn't want my hat to be lost. I, I, I had to chase her in. So I asked her to give me the hat back. She won't give it me back. And I'm not kind of confident enough to snatch a hat back off a prostitute in Amsterdam. I realised that there's a certain complicated power dynamic at play here. And if I snatch a hat out of her hand, I won't feel good about myself. So I have no choice to follow her in. And I, I go in and I end up and I'm sitting on a bed. It's up some stairs and we're sitting on this kind of grotty bed in, in, in Amsterdam. And I'm wanting her to give me my hat back and I don't have any money to really give her. Then she says, you say a price, I tell you a story. So I'm I got a desperate, so I said, um, 10 euros. She says, 15. I say, okay, 15. She says, give me the money. I say, give me the hat. She gives me my hat. So then I say, I've got 20, but you said 15, and I really need that change, which I, I don't know if I feel, I don't know if I feel proud of myself for saying that, but I did literally not have enough money, and I wanted that money to, you know, pay my way a little bit with my mum because she was paying for the entire journey and the hotel and everything and I and the, all of these restaurant meals which I will get to later she says she's got change but she doesn't give me any change and then her phone rings and 
I think, okay, right. And then she says, hang on, baby. And then she she picks up her phone and she starts talking in an, an African language. I'm not sure which African language it was. I I have some suspicions. And then she starts, she starts swearing. She's angry. She's shouting. I'm sort of sat in this room. I'm like, I didn't even mean to be in this room. And now I'm experiencing this really intense yelling of this woman who I'm sure has lots of reasons to, to shout, but she's having this really intense conversation. And, you know, 10 minutes go by and I'm sitting there waiting to... To, to know how this is going to end up because I feel like I can't really leave even though I've got my hat back because I'm supposed to be getting changed and she starts to take off her top casually as she talks and I, I'm like what the fuck is going on here I I don't want to have sex with this woman and I don't know what what she feels I've I've agreed to and then she finally after 15 minutes or so she she finishes on the phone and she says to me go on then what do you want to know and the first question I ask her is, what is her name? And the reason I ask this to both these prostitutes is because for me, I don't see these people as not people. And the, the most significant thing about a person is their name. And even if they want to give me a false name, I need to have something to see them by. Then she said, no, no, I will not tell you that, which is obviously fair enough, but still. And she said, you know, you use any name you like. And then she said, no, put down Hutu. And I said, how do you spell that? Which again, was a stupid thing to say. She said, that's not my problem. What are you doing? This man, he crazy. Everything I say, you are writing it. Right, you go now. Because I was writing down everything she was saying, like a like an idiot. I mean, I can see this from her point of view. I'm insanely writing down every word she's saying. I say, I haven't asked you anything. And she says, you need more time. You give me more money. So I say, no, it, I, I haven't got any more money she says, you want more? Give me more money. I say, OK, that's fine. I have got to go then. I'm really sorry I've offended you. She says, you haven't offended me. I say, well, I think I... She says, you're too hasty. I would have told you everything. This life right here. The prices, what life is like. Suck and fuck. Everything. But you are too hasty. You are too forward. And I say, but I want to know that stuff. I'd like to know. She says, you are not a good writer you are a no good writer you are too hasty you don't let the lady tell her story you are too hasty so i make my apologies and i'm very british at her very stupid and white and stoned and british at her and i say goodbye and she says you learn to be a writer let the woman tell her story you couldn't relax and make it nice you go now and i don't really know what to think about it she did steal my hat and I do still, despite everything, still feel aggravated with this lack of consent in her stealing my hat and me ending up in her room. But I also am aware of the crassness of my behaviour. I wasn't just having that life in the red light district though. I was also going to choral symphonies by Haydn in the daytime with my mum and his requiem and hearing Beethoven symphonies and like really classical shit really that I, I'm not really that familiar with classical stuff. I did sing some, some choir, I did, I did sing some, some choral stuff when I was a kid but I had these kind of beautiful transcendent musical experiences 
also high out of my mind. But my mum, of course, she would stand up and she would sing beside me every hymn in these churches, these church ceremonies we went to, the, the, the hymns that were in different language to the ones she speak and that she didn't know the tunes for, but she would sing at the top of her voice. She was really, really loud at singing songs she didn't know. And I just would join in and we would both sing really loudly, completely making up the songs in these churches. And what I loved about this experience with my mum is just how she wasn't high at hardly any of the time. And I will tell you the story of where my mum got high, but she was not high at hardly any of the time, but she was alive to it. She was alive to the experience in the way that I was when I was high. She was really experiencing the church stuff. My mum at her best is like a child and she delights in the world. And I didn't really understand it till we went on this, this holiday together. And one of the things that happened was she taught me how to see art. Because we, were, we went to the Van Gogh Museum and Van Gogh, seeing Van Gogh changed my life. I think I'm a writer and I'm a musician. I don't really understand visual art. And suddenly I was confronted with these physical, beautiful, powerful things that, that, that are so three-dimensional in, in reality with the, with the paint, that you can see the, the 3D of the paint. And it was there, standing in front of, of the first Van Gogh painting I'd ever seen, that my mum said to me, you know, you don't need to just stand in one place. With every picture, you have to start as close up to the picture as possible and then walk backwards. And the moment that the picture is right is the distance from the painting that you need to stand. And this blew my mind because I did realize, and ever since this has always been the case when I've seen visual art, if I, if I go back, it, it might be really close you're supposed to see that picture. It might be far away. But if you see a picture and you dismiss it, maybe you're not standing the right distance from it. And that was amazing to me because my mum, she's not like an intellectual. She is very emotionally driven. Emotion is where she's at, whether it's angry, whether it's joyous, emotion is where she's at. But this was like one of the most intellectual concepts I ever wrapped my head around, I think, of just how the distance from a piece of art being really significant to how you experience that art. And so it was a beautiful time in the daytime and a weird time in the night. The night that all of that combined was the night that my mum got hyped. So my mum, she's been in the 60s. She, she was very much, I've been there, I've done that, I've seen it. I know about weed. You can't put a new one on me. I know all of this stuff. And we go to this cafe. And this is the night that we've decided to go to the most expensive restaurant in Amsterdam that we can find. Like that does Dutch food, like proper Dutch cuisine, right? So that's where we're going after we get high in this, in this weed place. And that's where we're due, due to go. And my mum, she says, I'll just have the tea. I'll just have the tea. And she drinks the tea and I'm smoking a joint. And she finishes her tea and then she says, I'm not feeling anything. It's not working. And as anybody that's been around people who have taken edible weed know, you have to wait for it to kick in. And I pointed this out to her and she, as she said, she was in the 60s. She knows when the weed is not working and when it doesn't work. Uh, and this is not working. This tea is not working. It's not going to work. Give me some of your joint. I say, 
I don't think that you want to do that, mum. She says, I definitely want to do that. So she smokes the joint. We go to this expensive restaurant. We sit down at the table. We order our food. We're really excited. We order our food. And I'm getting mashed potato with different things mashed in it. Like there's a, there's a green mashed potato, a pink mashed potato with some kind of extra ingredient. And then there's a hot dog sausage and some bacon-like stuff. I'm pretty high. I'm really looking forward to this meal. And I look over at my mum and I meet her eyes and her face just changes grey. And this look of realisation happens in her head and she clutches my hand and she says Dave I am really high right now and I don't think I'm going to be able to eat the food that I've ordered just act natural and of course I giggle at this I'm I'm (laughs) I'm like, I told you, I told you this would happen, but I'm just so amused. And again, we're in this together. She's trying to bluff them that she's not stoned. And I have never seen anyone act so determinedly not stoned whilst being definitely clearly stoned. She was just holding the table and like physically holding herself into one solid position and I and I you know I had two meals I had all I had a starter and I had a main course and I had my starter and I had my main course and I had to deal with the uh the check situation of course she was paying so I, I I didn't sign her name on the on the bill the rest of the time she was just silent and it was just so perfect just such a perfect moment and I just felt so in in control and 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 like I'm looking after my mum and I'm actually doing something like all my life growing up. I always wanted to help my mum. I always wanted to to, to help the way she was to, to do something to really make her life easier. And I never feel like I managed to do that. And in this moment, I was like, right, I know how to handle someone having a weed freak out. I know how to handle that. I can be the adult here. I can deal with this for both of us. And then we paid up. I left the restaurant and my mum says, I have to go to the toilet, which I guess is why she was so grey-faced and complicated for the entire meal. And I stood outside and I munched on a weed brownie and waited for my mum to come out. And I realised that I I started this journey by working out my own way around the city, but now I was going to have to use those skills to get me and my mum back on the trams to the hotel when she can hardly walk. And I I did it, you know, I carried her through the streets and there's Christmas singing around us and we get onto the tram and I know where I'm going and I've worked out this adult system of transport that seemed like insane when I first got there. You know, there's so many trams, there's so many bikes, there's so many cars, so many pedestrians, and the the canals, everything about it is just, it just seems so foreign, but now I've worked out how to live in this world. And I think it was the next day was Christmas Day and we went to the, this restaurant, a different restaurant, and we sat down and my mum said, you know what, fuck it, we don't have to have anything uh, Christmassy. And you know what, we don't even have to have starter than main course. If we want three starters, we're just going to order three starters. Let's just go crazy. And we, so we ended up having this meal just, just of starters and I had lobster for the first time. And my mum, again, 
she showed me something again on this journey like I haven't got had many experiences where I can say my mum taught me something but on this trip to Amsterdam she taught me how to see art and she taught me how to crack the shell of a lobster and we had this Christmas meal together and I just remember having that Christmas dinner with her looking at her thinking about this crazy week that I had had with all of this kind of beauty and all of this weirdness and all of this life and thinking this is the Christmas spirit this is how Christmas should feel like you should feel like you're in the right place at the right time with the right person who you feel close to and I did feel close to my mum and I'll never forget that And it was snowing, you know, it was snowing at Christmas. It was beautiful. In the night it was snowing and it was beautiful. And in the days it was snowing and it was beautiful. But it but it was it was so kind of I don't know, it was like a different world. It really was like a magical Christmas fantasy. It like it did it was like that moment in my life, I guess because I was stoned the whole way through, was like a dream that I was having with my mum and that she was dreaming it too, you know. I hope that my relationship with my mum shifted and changed as a result of it. I think it changed the way I feel about us. We're going away again this, this Christmas. We're going to Prague where there won't be legal weed, so I will not be stoned. So we'll see how that goes. I'll tell you after that. But I, I think it did shift some things. Later on, I interviewed her and that shifted some other things. But even that, you know, she can't remember... She can never remember the significant moments we have together. Like she will forget and she will she will reset. She will go back to her kind of standard feelings about the matter. She doesn't seem to be able to remember these kind of moments. So it's kind of sad in that respect. But it's kind of happy that I remember, that I experienced that dream. Why do you have to? Lights.
Santa Claus is coming tonight. He's the one who makes everything alright. Thank you. Merry Christmas from the Dave and getting better acquainted and every other bloody project I'm doing. Happy Christmas. There'll be no episode next week. It's the annual GBA one week off. So we'll be getting better acquainted once again in 2013 on the 2nd of January. See you then. Have a happy Christmas if you celebrate Christmas. Have a happy whatever else you celebrate if you celebrate anything else. And if you're trying to get through it, my deepest sympathies to you. I know Christmas is a hard time. And if you're having a brilliant time, I'm really pleased for you. And I wish you love and joy and these things that seem a little bit cheesy, but actually are quite meaningful. Very hard to achieve, but we can achieve them for moments. And often Christmas can be one of those moments when we achieve joy, happiness, peace and love. Great things, whether you believe in Christ, Santa Claus, Father Christmas or just in your friends and your family and the people that you know, which is what this show believes in. Have some good conversations this Christmas. See you in the new year. find getting better acquainted on twitter at uba podcast you can find it on facebook it's getting better acquainted have a search on facebook and like it or you can find it on the website www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk you can also subscribe by searching on itunes and subscribing to us that way and on the stitcher smart radio app that you can download for your smartphone from stitcher.com or through the app store there are lots of ways to get better acquainted if you enjoy listening to getting better acquainted that's great i'm really grateful to you for joining me on this journey through conversation i make this show for free and that's how i want this show to be a free show but i do want more people to hear the conversation so if you could share this with people that you know that would be great and also if you could leave some itunes feedback on itunes telling people that you like the show and telling them what it is and what it's about that would also be really great because that helps to push me up the itunes charts and all that sort of thing it increases the amount of people who might hear it also I've got the 100th episode of Getting Better Acquainted coming up next year, which is really exciting. In fact, I think we've probably had more than 100 episodes already because some of the episodes I don't number. They might have been two-parters. They might have been Getting Better Acquainted extras. I wanted to do something to mark the occasion of it being the 100th episode, and I finally come up with a plan. So... First of all, after episode 99, there'll be a week of Getting Better Acquainted episodes going from Monday to 
Friday, and they're going to be five live conversations I recorded at the Invisible Picture Palace, which is a glass house in Wapping run by In The Dark Radio. I did five really great conversations there in November in front of a live audience. So I'm going to put them in the run-up to the 100th episode. They won't be counted as numbers, though, because that's getting better acquainted live and new strand. So what will the 100th episode be? Well, for the 100th episode, I'm going to throw a party inviting a lot of people who've been on Getting Better Acquainted and I'm going to play them some clips and we're going to talk about the show. I'm also going to try and get people who've been on who can't make it to send in some sound clips and I'm going to read out the email correspondence which people have sent in to me and there have been a few and I'm really pleased that people are reaching out to me in this way and this is going to be my chance to reach back and to acknowledge that communication so if you have something you'd like to say about getting better acquainted that you'd like to tell me please send me an email and i'll read it out as part of the 100th episode but also i'd really like to hear from listeners about what your favorite episodes are or any moments specific moments would be even better of episodes that you've really enjoyed because that will help me wade through 100 episodes of getting better acquainted